Welcome back to CCL's podcast, Lead With That, where we talk current events in pop culture to look at where leadership is happening and what's happening with leadership. On June 17th, 23-year-old Naomi Osaka, the number two ranked tennis player in women's tennis, withdrew from Wimbledon. And this happened in the wake of Osaka withdrawing in the second round from the French Open in a storm of controversy caused by her decision to skip mandatory post-match news conferences. Osaka then revealed she had been dealing with anxiety and depression since taking the spotlight after winning the U.S. Open in 2018, the first of her four Grand Slam titles. The pressure of the media and expectation was causing Osaka a price to pay that was just too big. But for some, her reasoning wasn't good enough. Osaka's come under fire for her decisions. Most notably, tennis legend Boris Becker recently said, You're 23. You're healthy. You're wealthy. Your family's good. Where's the effing pressure? Today, we're going to explore the important role leaders and leadership play in managing and supporting mental health. Our collective mental health was thrust into the spotlight during the pandemic, but it's something that has long been a dirty little secret, something whispered about behind closed doors and in tight circles. But we don't have the luxury of ignoring this ignoring this serious issue any longer. As the world thaws and we embrace the new hybrid work reality, leadership plays a vital role in making sure we help people be their best by ensuring they're at their best. I'm Ren Washington, one of the partners here at the Center, and as usual, I'm joined with my co-host and another CCL partner, Allison Barr. Allison, what's been the worst injury you ever sustained? Mm. I, I've had the luxury of having lots of physical injuries. I assume you mean a physical <laughs> injury. I mean whatever you think. <laughs> so, wow. I played a lot of sports growing up. I still do. And I, I had a, a high ankle sprain once that also resulted in a partial tear to my Achilles tendon. And that was Dang. horrible. That was probably the worst injury that I've ever had. What about you? Wow. Well, I had a grade three sh- shoulder separation Ooh. when I was a, a younger version of myself when I played football. And so uh, it was a, a labrum tear. And it's something that, you know, still never healed to this day. I, I, at one point, I thought it was the worst pain I'd ever felt. But not too long ago, I had kidney stones. And maybe kidney stones is the worst injury I've ever sustained. It was easily the worst pain I've ever felt. So. That's sort of what I'm going through. But it's funny because, you know, both the shoulder and the kidney stones are recognized as a pain that men, they're the only glimpse that men will get into the pain of childbirth. (laughs) And so I heard that everywhere I went with kidney Mm -hmm. stones was, well, you have better appreciation for your wife, don't you? And I looked at them and I said, I've always appreciated my wife. And yes, yes, you're right. (laughs) Um, yeah, I've heard that about kidney stones. My my dad had those once a long time ago when we were growing up. And I remember just the anguish, just the anguish that he faced. And I I recently had a, had a cyst inside my body rupture. I forgot about that. Oh, How wow. could I forget? I must have blocked it out. But I have heard, <laughs> yeah. I've heard that that is akin to kidney stones as well, because you have to wait it out. It was horrible. Right. Yep, it was horrible. You just need to wait. And see, it's so interesting when you're talking about this anguish, you use that word and this, and and when I think about anguish, I think, okay, this, these recognizable anguishes, Mm -hmm. whether it be a dislocation or a tear or an internal pain, but somehow some internal ailments or pains are recognized and, and others aren't. And I think that's a lot of what this Osaka situation has really brought to the forefront again. Mm -hmm. Because it's not the first time we're hearing about kind of this this secret mental health issue. Yep. Yeah. I mean, also, you know, 
What was interesting to me about that story is that the same week that Osaka withdrew, Roger Federer also did from the French Open, a citing injury. He's had some knee problems. And when he spoke about withdrawing, he said, and I quote, I'm air quoting here because he literally said, I need to listen to my body. And what's the difference between Osaka and him listening to their body? There's no difference. She was also listening to her body. It's just to the point that you just made, one injury is visible to others and the other is is mostly unseen. Well, and uh, you know, the same day that Osaka said she was dropping out of Wimbledon, Rafael Nadal, the other big tennis icon, he said he was dropping out of Wimbledon and the Olympic Games, Mm -hmm. citing exactly the same language, listening to his body and to prolong his career to continue to do what makes him happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. yeah, yeah. What 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 is interesting specifically for you? Well, uh, shortly after Federer's withdrawal from the tournament, specifically, there were droves of publications in support of him taking time off to recover, which was a far cry from the treatment that Osaka received, questioning her ability to handle pressure, questioning her, calling her selfish, calling her entitled. Um, and it just highlights the stigma to me that surrounds mental health illness. That's been around for a long time. We've known that, but it was definitely highlighted for me in the differences in treatment to both things that, that are injuries. Yeah. Have you ever seen something like this show up in the work that we do? Well, yes and no. There's definitely conversation from clients around concepts of mental health. Mm-hmm. However, I can't say that I've ever in in a group setting, in a group setting I can't say that I often hear people, clients talk about their own mental health. Rather, they might talk about it as a concept, this conceptual thing. And I believe the reason is because of the stigmatization of mental health. So I think if there wasn't that stigma, we'd be talking about it a lot more. I I think you're right. Before the pandemic, I noticed a trend where if someone were to take a a mental health day, and I'm Mm -hmm. doing one of our favorite things, Alison, I'm air quoting now. uh, If someone were to take a mental health day, it was kind of like this tongue-in-cheek little smirk where we look at someone and we kind of say oh okay Allison you take your mental health day and and it's like or I'm gonna work from home I just need to recharge and everyone knew what that really meant was that you had the laptop by your feet and you were just moving your toe on the mouse pad every once in a while so your icon on Skype would stay green right and um but I think the pandemic really brought into light this idea of Okay, burnout recognized by the World Health Organization and people were really put under the strain of having to work from home or really live at work. And now I think there's this rising willingness, like a lot of things, to kind of talk about the impact that our mental well-being has on leadership effectiveness, on team effectiveness, on an, an organization's well-being. Right on how people perform at their best. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, someone said to me two days ago in a conversation, human beings are not robots, which is, we know this, <laughs> obvious, right? We know this. Uh, we can't be expected to produce, 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 especially in times of tremendous pressure and, and for some trauma that came from the pandemic last year and still lingers on right now. So I think you're right that the year of 2020 highlighted a lot of, areas in the workplace that remain sort of swept under the rug, mostly because I think people don't know how to address them. I think most people are well-intended and want to support one another. And I think, again, there's that stigma and people don't know where to start. Yeah. I wonder when I think about where to start, I was thinking about your injury. (laughs) What did the support structure look like around your biggest injuries? 
Yeah, that's, I, I'm laughing a little because I look back at that ankle injury and the Achilles injury that I talked to you about a minute ago, and mm-hmm. I was, how old was I? Maybe 19, mm-hmm. I think. And so <laughs> with that specific injury, I was quite stubborn and a little bit in denial about having the injury, which of course made it worse because I did not follow instructions. I did not follow what my friends and family were telling me to do and the doctor, right? Like you cannot mm-hmm. put weight on it. And I'm like, I'm fine. You know, just being a stubborn teenager who wanted to go back to playing sports. But if I think about the more recent one, which was like having a cyst on one of my organs rupture, I mean, I did everything that I was told to do. I let people help me, right? Because I didn't want it to get worse. You know, you say two things there. The first instance, you ignored kind of the ideas of the best practices. You were stubborn. You're like, I'm not feeling this. And then the second time around, you kind of took all of the help that you could get. You were willing to accept it. And when I think about mental health in the workplace, as a leader who's trying to help people manage through those things, or as a leader who has their own issues, or just any employee, it's amazing how often one of those two things you said is true. Mm. In my experience, one of them is kind of like this, and you said the word stigma a couple of times, there's this kind of a toxic achieving that I think happens all over the globe, but happens mm-hmm. with a lot of the clients that I work with where the old adage, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead or, right. you know, work, work, work. And, and there is no time for me to say, well, I'm feeling anxiety or depression or uh, cloudy. And, and there's no time for me to pause. It's kind of like, well, ignore that. I, and there's nothing wrong with me. I'm stubbornly going to push through. Or even maybe the other part of it is because of all that stigma, it's, dangerous it's scary it's hard for me to ask for help or Mm -hmm. willingly accept all the help that I might get around those things yeah I believe all those things are true and probably very relatable they are to me and probably to a lot of our listeners and if we go back up a little and look at Boris Becker's Boris Becker is also well he's a retired tennis player and if we look back to his statement, it was was and is an all too common response to mm. people who have mental health challenges. And so some of what he said that was the rest of that quote is, is it really pressure? Isn't it pressure when you don't have food on the table, when you feed your family, you don't have a job, when you have a life-changing injury? Isn't that more pressure? Mm. And what just really stands out to me there is that depression, anxiety, they are life-changing injuries. And there's stigma around people not acknowledging mental health challenges as very real. And so if you think back to having kidney stones, Ren, like what if somebody had said to you, that's all in your head or you're you're being so weak, just get up and deal with it. Like this is all in your head. What would you have thought or felt if somebody had said or if, if the majority of people were saying that to you? Well, I would have said probably first a couple of expletives. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But then I'd be able to say, well, actually, I can point to the CAT scan that shows the calcified object that's stuck (laughs) in my body. Right. Um, But as you make me think about that, it's funny because I can't I can't show someone the hard details of, well, this is my anxiety and you can see it stuck in my body here. Mm, Right. And it almost goes back to our conversation last time around that hard soft skills, Mm. where hard skills tend to be more tangible around technical accomplishments. Soft skills tend to be more amorphous or, or those intangibles. And I wonder too, as we're so unfamiliar with helping mental challenges or normalizing the conversation, people without seeing the kind of the doctor's note or the proof kind of shrug it off and say, well, suck it up. Too bad. It is all in your head. I mean, what do you tell someone when they tell you it is all in your head, though? 
aside from some expletives like uh, yeah. <laughs> myself i would say i'd be hard pressed not to have an intellectualized response to pull out research right and like images of the brain that would be very hard for me not to do so you know i might like i might share my own story depending on who the person is but when i was in college and in, in graduate school rather i was also working full-time i had a diagnosed anxiety disorder and it was horrible right but that's me as a human i would have been willing to share that and risk the you know repercussions and the punishment that can come from admitting such a thing but i believe in normalizing the conversation and i think it's important i think it is important and something you highlight there is really connects to the psychological safety that Ra was talking about, where you would yeah. feel safe enough to share. And when I think about Osaka and her post during the French Open, posted on Instagram, kind of this two-page pouring out of the heart, talking about, mm. hey, I apologize to all the cool media people who I've let down. This isn't me. I, I just, I, this is hard for me. This is painful. This is damaging. I can't, I can't do this. I need to step down. And and the support structure around her, not from her fans, her family, but also from her ad partners, her brand parts. It yep. was really interesting where there was a time where there would have been this huge plan about Osaka walking out to Wimbledon in her Nike shoes and her, her new smartwatch and her muscle relaxer and and you know, all of a sudden this beautiful marketing opportunity. And, and instead, these organizations aren't worried about when she gets back out there, but have come out in in massive support saying mm -hmm. we support naomi we understand that these ailments are serious that without being addressed people can't be their best and so when i think about leadership's role in this it really centers around the idea of how can i as a leader when asking someone how they're doing or what they're feeling or what they're going through to believe them and then provide the same kind of willingness that i would for a physical ailment to the mental anguish. Yeah. And gosh, there was a lot that came up for me when you were just talking about her and her brand and her sponsors and being supported in that way, which is really wonderful because, you know, I would imagine for a professional athlete, which I am not, however, I would imagine, <laughs> I know, I know, uh, newsflash, I'm not, but I would imagine that they feel a lot of times owned by brands and owned mm. by corporations and owned by the media because they are a lot of them at least contractually obligated to speak to the media as we know from Osaka because she got fined right. for not doing it. it was in her contract um and so I can imagine that was a huge relief for Naomi Osaka to feel a little bit of pressure hopefully taken off so that she can take care of herself and when I think about the workplace it certainly it shows up there too. And Osaka, of course, can't necessarily take a hybrid workplace option. That wouldn't work. However, a lot of organizations are moving toward that option. And I wonder, is hybrid work the great equalizer? And if it's not the great equalizer, is it at least a step in the right direction for people? What do you think? I wonder, her hybrid experience is she goes to the tennis court, she finishes her match, she goes home, she right. logs on to Zoom, she takes her media from there. And, and yeah, maybe she doesn't have that luxury, but when I think of the hybrid workforce, part of what I think the pandemic gave people a chance to do was to recognize this mental stress, this burnout, to try to build in strategies or think of ways to maintain 
their well-being. I was reading about a couple of articles about people kind of getting back to work and they were concerned, you know, this person lost 50 pounds at home because mm -hmm. they were able to mix in more exercise and healthier eating habits or, or people who maybe didn't have the healthiest relationship with substances. They're worried about, well, what does a happy hour look like now? Mm -hmm. What does socializing with my colleagues look like? And how is that going to damage the, the kind of benefit that quarantine has had for me? And so... I don't know if hybrid is the great equalizer. Maybe it's one of those things where it's going to put us back into some old habits. Or what if we lose sight of our mental well-being as we try to now find the new normal? Get used to getting back to work. Or maybe I'm the person who's not coming back into the office mm -hmm. and then I'm feeling separated from my team. Does that add to my mental anguish? Does that damage my mental health? It depends. And it always is going to depend on the person. It's really hard to, I think that's what makes this difficult is that organizations are going to need to take time to adjust to whatever the new way of working is. There will be logistics and strategies that will need to be adapted. And that's going to take some time. Uh, management styles are going to need to be adapted. However, I think the effort is worth the time spent on that. I mean, you highlighted a couple of things already, but the hybrid workplace can allow for a new environment in which people can reduce these added stressors that lead to acute pressure. So a few stressors for some people might be like, for example, commute times. Like there are some people mm -hmm. who have, when it's all said and done, they have a 10 and a half hour day or longer because of commute times. Um, some people have a hard time leaving, truly leaving the workplace and spend extra hours at the office. There are some people who work in toxic work environments and the hybrid option will allow for some people to use that discretionary time to their benefit to be spent on well-being instead. I think it can also provide people with more autonomy to schedule their workday in a way that's going to suit their needs the best. And again, I know it's going to take some time to adjust. It's not going to be perfect. And I think the effort's going to be be worth it. it. It would be worth it if the organization can support it. You know, I was working with a woman the other day and she was talking about the experiences that she has with her work. And she was saying, it's just not a safe environment here. Hmm. We can't admit fault we can't show weakness it's highly competitive it's really driven and so i wonder and maybe this is a part for a little later or maybe i can just spring it on you now it's like what about the organizations who say no we're not doing hybrid we're we're going to bring you back full time or there's really no more flexible work schedules yeah. how do i then put in the strategies to that i might have used in my hybrid space yeah i think if we're simply focusing on mental health right now there are still ways that you can do that. I think that the hybrid option or the remote option gives more options to support people in their mental health. I think that leadership, regardless of you being in person or not, can start reducing stigma by acknowledging acknowledging that people have mental health obstacles that can infringe on their work, right? And so organizations are better suited to acknowledge those things if they're looking at it from a productivity standpoint. Like if you want your employees to be the most productive that they can be, then you, you better allow them to take care of themselves. So I get it. There are some workplaces who will be the way that you just described. You know, we don't accept failure and X, Y, Z, which I don't think is a healthy way to be. And if they want to be successful, they have to acknowledge that people are going to have hardships, period. Undoubtedly. I talk a lot around, you know, I think the generationally, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. First time in American history, we have four generations in the workforce at the same time. Yeah. All the way from Gen Z up through the boomers and with millennials and Gen X's in between. And 
And the implications of that from a leadership standpoint are as, as the market diversifies, talent diversifies, people don't have to stay at the same job for 30 years anymore. Right. And, and because of that, they don't have to put up with some of the same behavioral expectations that an older generation may have. And maybe that's too part of why that ethos of no crying in baseball. You know, it's like keep your keep your complaints to yourself. Your job is to clock in and you're gonna die in this building. And that's you should count yourself lucky. And if it hurts on the way, then good. That means it's working. And I think I don't know if that's uniquely American, but it's definitely a culture of that drive, drive, business first. And but now people have, and I wouldn't say it's just limited to the newer generations, but all people have more options and because they have more options especially as it relates to choosing work that they care about that's mission driven or choosing work that they care about that also is better for their mental health and well-being it really is an interesting opportunity for all of us to change the way that we have these conversations to to create a new way that say okay we're in this hybrid workforce and part of the hybridization is that we're going to have less rigidity about the hours that you have to work. And insofar as maybe it's not just a straight nine to five, maybe it's a seven to 10, then you hit the gym or you take your kids out to lunch and then you come back and you finish up your day. And maybe that's what the new hybrid looks like or how can people manage their personal and professional on the work from home days and then still get the office connection when they're in the workspace in the actual physical office. Right, and everybody's different. Like everybody's like mental health aside and included, everybody's preferences are different too. So if you said to me, Allison, you have the option, you can work from home exclusively, you can be in the office hybrid or you can be in the office full time, what would you pick? It depends. <laughs> so right. I suppose I would pick the hybrid option. I love going to the office and some days it's really wonderful to not have to go to the office. I still get my work done and that's the point, right? Like one of my clients said the other day, I don't care how you get your work done, just get it done. I don't care how my team gets their work done. I just want it to get done. And so I think for managers measuring success based on outcome versus how and where you get it done is the most important thing that they can do. And then if people want to show up at the workplace, okay. Yeah, well, you were talking about Morgison in our last conversation mm. and the team's needs framework and team success model. And you know, when we think about how do you know if an effective team is working or what are the markers of an effective team? Yeah, success, the results matter. But did we learn how to do it? Could we be better today than tomorrow? And maybe most importantly is, do I want to come into work again with you people at this place? <laughs> right. And if that's not met, then it doesn't really matter if the project is one. And I think that kind of awakening is happening where that's what that person is saying. I don't really care how you get your work done as long as you get it done. Right. And we find, I was reading a LinkedIn post, you may have seen it, where this woman was talking about she got this, her dream job, six-figure salary. She was working at, I think it was a marketing firm or something. And and she noticed that people were staying really late, but she thought, hey, what if I start my day early so I can get out right at five because she had the family to, to consider. And then a couple weeks later, she was called into the office of the, the leadership and said, you know, it's not a good fit. You don't really fit here. You're fired. And it's because she just wasn't staying till 10 o'clock. And she was saying in the quote, you know, people would just stay later, but they wouldn't be doing any work. Mm, yep. and, and a lot of times when I think about those people who are rigidly tracking time or, or all the anxiety or added to the time clocking or the, the culture of, well, see and be seen, you can't leave early even if you've put in a full day's work. In most of my experience, I just see that that has people just sitting around. Oh, or, yeah. 
or like streaming on social or or looking at the news because culturally we're not allowed to leave before eight o'clock, but no one's doing anything from six right. to eight. Whereas maybe one person who in the hybrid workforce hit the gym in the middle of the day, but they actually are working from six to eight because that's their, their creative mind is that is the sharpest then. And they actually have the energy to do it because they exercised right. and they're not anxiety ridden or depressed because they have to stay in the office for 14 hours, even when though four of those hours is like playing Tetris. Right, right. Yeah, I'm. I'm laughing because again, I had a conversation with the same client recently who's in a new position at her workplace. Um, she was promoted, and she. I said, "What time do you go to work?" She said, "I leave my house at seven thirty. I get to work by seven forty-five, and I stay till about seven p.m." And I said, "Is that the expectation that you stay till seven p.m.?" And she said, "No, but I can't be the first one to leave. That would send the wrong message." And I said, "What are you doing in that time?" And she said, "Mostly, I'm on Facebook." <laughs> And we had a, a laugh about it. And what message are you sending then? What is the message that you are sending, right? Like the message mm -hmm. is that perceived busyness does not equal productivity. That's not what it, that's not how it is. So you mentioned generations too, and I have a lot of hope for, um, you know, the upcoming generations who will be eventually our CEOs and uh, the leaders of the organizational workforce who are more apt to say, I'm going to take the two hours off to go to therapy, for example, right? They don't, there's no shame that's attached mm -hmm. to taking care of themselves. There's no shame attached and they still get their work done, right? Like they still get their work done. And maybe better than some. Right. Right. And I think the leaders of the future and I mean, the leaders of today, listeners, as you approach this new normal, and, and you and I have talked about this, I think now I'm seeing it with the vaccine rollout the way it is and with my clients, like people are excited to get back to it. People are over the social distancing. And then I know there's a group of people who kind of really hit their stride work from home mm. or don't want it to change. You know, you were talking about the commuter person. I knew a woman who was commuting two hours both ways Oh boy, for her. Yeah, like four hours of commuting. And I thought, my goodness, what that can't possibly make you better at work or at home. And so I think the new leaders of today are going to have to manage there are two different groups now. A manager, whether or not they're in the office or virtual, is going to have to manage the virtual group and the in-person group. Right. Or leaders are going to have to lead teams that are split virtually and in-person. And so when we look at the hybrid, there's this idea of the amplification theory for virtual work is that if you're a good leader, virtual will amplify your good leadership characteristics. The hybrid interaction will be amplified by them. And if you're bad, your bad characteristics are amplified in the virtual environment. Hmm. And so a lot of this stuff, especially as it relates to mental health, is getting the team aligned, saying, what are our new expectations? How are we going to operate? And what does it look like for us to actually work hard versus look busy? Right. And the good news is for the hybrid people working from home, I think we all have a greater appreciation of the real and the realization that, you know, actually, when I work at home, I work a lot more hours than when I was in the office. I mean, that's absolutely true for me because I just find myself working all the time when I'm at home and my my systems there, it works. And so I think that's an advantage for the hybrid workforce going forward and leaders managing hybrid teams is now when you're at home house and I don't just think that you're eating bonbons and the laptop is at the edge of your toe and you're just swirling it around and stay active. I know because we all were stuck in the home office for 12 months that, oh, you're likely being productive. Right. And 
I could be sitting in, I'm not, by the way, however, I could be sitting in my office at the, at the workplace in my actual office at our building with my door shut eating bonbons operating my yeah. laptop. Like, so there's no guarantee that just because someone right. is at the office, they're getting work done. So that's what I mean when I say like measure success by way of results. What, you know, and, and I like what you said about alignment. It's really important as we know, we talk at CCL a lot about this is, you know, making sure the team's clear on the direction at hand and are we aligned on how we're going to work together. And oftentimes that alignment piece is the messiest and takes the longest mm. to come together. And it might be the most important. It's, it's going to have to be, it'll <laughs> clearly be. And I think too, I mean, it's already hard in person to do that. So I, again, we're in a, an interesting slowdown to power up focal point or, you know, this is, this is, is happening. And what does it look like for us to be effective in these new teams? And there's going to be some pain. There's going to be some tension. There's going to be that the community that in-person teams can have sitting at the same table being on that and the way that people might feel separate when they're on individual computer screens at home. And, you know, a tactical hybrid solution to that is, well, what does everyone take a team meeting from their individual office on their individual machine? So we're all in equal footing. Right. Or maybe just simply you ask your team, does that matter? Or even maybe if you ask the team on the front end, hey, do you want to try this? And everyone says yes. And then after the first meeting, everyone recognizes, hey, it kind of felt like an us versus them vibe. Maybe we should switch to all of us being on our own machines. Right. I mean, whatever the answer is, we've got to provide the space for it. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's. I think it's okay if you're a leader or a manager to acknowledge this might be clunky and we're, we will figure it out together. And I want us all to be able to have input in this situation. So to your point, if, if it feels like us against them, also it could be super awkward if there's four of us in person, you know, sort of huddled around the <laughs> camera lens, right? And then four or five people virtually, individually, it just, it, it's, body language, it becomes hard to read body language, it becomes hard and to communicate for a lot of reasons. So I think it's okay to just admit we're learning, we're doing this together. Here's what the plan is. And we might have to realign as we go. And I think that's full circle back to the idea of helping manage mental health. Right. Is that still, maybe as a leader, and I'm not saying that you have to open up all your team meetings with the mental health share, but it'd be interesting as a leader as we cultivate intention around hybrid working and being open to have the conversations. What does it look like too to say, as we continue to do this new forming and norming as we team, let's keep top of mind these revelations that we've all had around the importance of maintaining our own mental health, these these right. invisible injuries, these these things that still cause us anguish or pain, but maybe aren't healed with an ice pack or right. uh, with traditional medicines, but instead other kinds of support. Yeah, and I'm glad you're bringing this back. You'd mentioned a few minutes ago psychological safety, and that's so important in the workplace in general. It's also important with regard to supporting people in their mental health. And those who struggle or have struggled with mental health illnesses know that sometimes symptoms can come at the most inopportune times, and you can't plan for it, and it's debilitating. So much to the same respect that Osaka spoke about having this acute pressure 
and depression that prevented her from doing her air quoting her job to speak to the media. Um, those people and those who who have those sort of symptoms at the workplace shouldn't be penalized for making choices that help them to mitigate symptoms. And trust is incredibly important there because for some, it's going to mean tending to symptoms in a private way. It can, right? Mm-hmm. It might mean that Susan's going to step away from the office and she's got a private meeting in her calendar and we need to respect that and trust her. It's up to her whether or not she discloses it. And again, like I think there are more working adults than we would even begin to know that could benefit from this kind of environment ultimately be more productive and less stressed at work. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't throw out a statistic here, which is one in five adults have diagnosed mental illnesses in the U.S. And I believe that mm. I believe that number is likely much higher because stigma prevents people from seeking support and ultimately millions of people remain undiagnosed. So I think organizations are best served to address this, whether or not they know that there's mental health challenges within right. their team. It does. It's irrelevant, right? Right. It, whether or not you know it, it is there. Yes. Like you're saying, I mean, you got a team of 10 people. The odds are two of them are probably diagnosed with right. some kind of mental health thing. And there's likely a few more who are undiagnosed exactly. or not admitting it. And so, too, I, I love what you said. It's not too uh, enough about just mitigating the symptoms, but maybe as this person takes care of himself, they're not only mitigating, they're they're making themselves better. Right. I think exactly. shifting that part of the dialogue too is it's it's not where I'm I'm doing everything to keep the house from falling down, but if I can do this maintenance, we can build higher and stronger than we ever have before. And, and so for me, I think as I I reflect on what what can someone do, what can mm-hmm. a team leader do or or an individual do, is to help change the conversation, remove the stigma. I think just because something cannot be seen does not mean it's not happening. And maybe it is a generational shift where, you you know, you kind of say, well, maybe a Gen Zer right now, it might be more comfortable than ever saying, hey, I'm taking some time for therapy so that I can come back and work harder and better. But whatever that is, I think the big takeaway here is in leadership or as a leader, the goal is to help people be their best. And if people feel like they belong, if they people feel like they're part of a team, if people feel like they're cared for, yeah, then all of a sudden they might increase their belonging. And then so what if we provide an environment where people felt supported and cared for as it related to their own well-being? The same kind of they're taking care of their well-being is heralded and rewarded the same way as them taking care of their business. What an interesting idea. So as a leader, how can you change your own thinking where you say, hey, self-care is as important as our wins. And likely the more people take care of themselves, the more wins we're going to have as a team or an organization or an individual. Yeah. I mean, I. so those are my major takeaways, I think. Yeah. I would echo what you just said and lead with that. And I'll add success of the workplace shouldn't depend on FaceTime in the office. And we've learned that, right? Like a lot of organizations can have success with their employees working outside of the office. Some can't as well. Like I want to acknowledge that if you work at a restaurant, you have to be at the restaurant, right? Like I want to acknowledge that. Uh, However, success shouldn't depend on that FaceTime. It should depend on results and impact within the organization. So I think if you are a manager, you're a leader, um, understand that perceptual busyness is not the same as results and measure the outcome, not the activity or how or from where it gets done. And I think it's important to 
reduce the mental health stigma regardless of what you know about your teammates because you might have a team that does not have mental health obstacles and they might disclose that to you. And if that's the case, you can still lead from a place of support and validation and encourage those around you to also be operating from a place of support and validation and minimize judgment Um, in the same way that Roger Federer had some knee problems. That's just as like Naomi Osaka's mental health obstacles are just as valid. And so I think it is acknowledging that you know, whether you have uh, a visible illness or obstacle, it's all valid. And and to your point, encouraging your teams to take care of themselves so that they can perform. Yeah. And take care of each other so we can perform. Yes. Well said. Well said. Well, thanks for this conversation, Ren. It was, it's an important one. And I think close to my heart and a lot of people's hearts. And Mm -hmm. I always, always enjoy hearing your perspective as well. Yeah. Thanks for it. Yeah. And to our listeners, as always, thanks for tuning in. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes at ccl.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Podbean, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And you can also find both Ren and I on LinkedIn. Uh, I believe we're both on Twitter. I'm looking for Ren's acknowledgement. No? Okay. No, people, you can't find me there. (laughs) We're both on LinkedIn. I admit that I love TikTok and I'm very active on TikTok. We'd love to connect with you there. And we also want to add an extra special thank you to Ryan, yes. Emily, and the the other Allison who are That's behind right. the scenes making our podcast possible. So thank you so much. We'll catch you next time, folks. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.